Exact Nature's all-natural CBD-based products are specially formulated to help you lighten the load in recovery, be it with addictive cravings, depression and anxiety, or improving sleep. Founded and run by a father-son team, both in recovery, this issue is personal for them. Learn more at exactnature.com, and as a listener of the Sobriety Diaries, use the code TSD20 to receive a 20% discount at purchase. Again, TSD20 at exactnature.com. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Sobriety Diaries, friends. My name is Nate. I am a grateful recovering alcoholic six years from my last drink. My sobriety is such a huge part of who I am. I decided that I needed to help others find their voice and share their journey too. The Sobriety Diaries is a video podcast where we share powerful stories of recovery told by those who live them. Head on over to thesobrietydiaries.com where you can join our insiders list for exclusive content, early release episodes, and more. Also, please share this podcast with just one person in your life who may still be struggling. You just never know what they may need to hear today. Recovery is possible. I am with my new friend, Melissa Gissy Witherspoon, and we were chuckling. It's kind of a mouthful, but hi, Melissa. (laughs) How are you today? Hi, Nate. I am doing great. I am so grateful to be here talking with you. I am very grateful for this opportunity. Well, thank you for making time. I'm looking forward to our conversation and hearing a little more about your story. Thanks again for making time. and. I'll say off off the get-go here, thank you so much for sending uh, a few copies of your book. I'm so looking forward to, to diving into it. And we also have one for a giveaway that we will be doing uh, in conjunction with the release of your episode. So uh, we'll have another uh, lucky listener who gets to uh, sort of embrace that and, and connect with you that way as well. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I wrote it for... Um, the purpose of sharing my story for other people, as you'll see the tone as you begin to read it, that it is written in a way very much like what we're doing today. I'm having a conversation with somebody. I didn't know who it would be at the time that I was writing it, but I would imagine in my mind that I was having a conversation with another person that was looking for a little hope and healing and um, was kind of walking the sober path or thinking about walking the sober path. Mm. And, um, so that's the type of book it is. It's a new, you get a new friend when you get the book. 
I love that. And then if you don't want to be my friend, you can just close the book and set it down. Yes. (laughs) Gift it to somebody. (laughs) That's a really good thing about Quitlet or, or, you know, putting things on paper as a resource because we can pass it on, right? It can continue to help people and and maybe not just sit on a bookshelf once we're finished with it. Uh, But I think that's a great point. Yeah. Sharing is caring. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Melissa, I usually like to start by asking you to share with us when was your last drink or drug and, and why was it that day in particular? So my sobriety date is November 21st, 2013. And I had, um, I need, I wanted to live. I decided that I wanted to live after months of trying to die. And I had failed at everything that you could think of in my life, including trying to take my own life. And I had what I believe is um, a divine intervention. And in that moment, um, I believe I was told that you have a purpose and if you can let go of this and just trust in that purpose, that, um, you will see it all come to fruition, but first you have to go take care of yourself. And so I, um, I did, I went away to, uh, rehab, but not like the ones that I had visited in the past. I went to a dual diagnosis, full Mm. treatment facility. It was long-term, um, And it was one of the best first steps that I've ever taken because um, they understood that I was managing not just alcoholism and not just addiction to Xanax and other medication, prescription medications, that I um, had a lot of things at play. You know, my um, uh, alcohol and drug abuse was decades long Mm -hmm. and it... um, because of my choices and circumstances through those decades, I had created a lot of havoc, you you know, we're talking decades. So um, there was a lot of layers that needed to kind of be peeled off. And um, of course, you can't do that all in the treatment facility, but they can kind of classify some of the stuff that I was dealing with. And, you know, they were specialized in dialectical behavior therapies, and they had, um, talk to me about, um, PTSD. And so I would never think myself to be somebody that would have a PTSD. That's something you hear about. Like maybe somebody goes away to war. You hear about a lot with veterans and stuff like that, but because of some of the situations I had gotten myself into, I very much had it. And so there was a lot of emotional, um, they had to get some medications, right. You know, I have, uh, a bipolar disorder that I, I have to learn how to manage and live with for the rest of my life. And when it's managed properly, um, it's perfect. You know, it's, you, it's just like anything else. It's just like, if you have diabetes or you have any other kind of thing that you require certain medications and counseling and proper care, and you have to keep yourself in check. So this, this diagnosis treatment center had, um, they had all the steps to teach me how to balance all of those things. So it wasn't just about stopping the drinking Mm. or not popping the pills. It was about those things. You won't need them when we get to the core of some of these other things that you're actually struggling with. It was was enlightening. Yeah. Yeah. that's, That's the key, isn't it? 
um, yeah. the why behind it. Right. Yeah. You mentioned a, a couple good points too. It's, it's that the diagnosis and developing these, our treatment programs that are specific to us, you know, just mm. the same way we each have our own journey to recovery. We each have our own journey to get us to that point as well. And I think the diagnosis and treatment plan is part of that. But but prior, I think we all have things that maybe happen to us or, or circumstances in life perhaps contribute um, right. to our addiction or to the start of using and or abusing substances. So uh, I would like to, you know, invite you to kind of s start where you want to start, share as much as you want to share. Right. Um, and, and let's kind of walk through that process and, and leading up to that day in November. Okay. So um, your podcast is not long enough for me to give you all of the good, <laughs> gory, gruesome details. Yes nor um, did I include a lot of those gruesome details um, in my book because yeah. I have um, made amends with a lot of people and um, I didn't want the purpose of my uh, recovering out loud to not glorify, but what is the other word? I mean, maybe For me, it was, it could be, yeah, it could be considered glorifying it, but I don't like those horror stories to overshadow exactly the recovery and, and the, the more important side of things. Exactly. And, and, and some people, um, that is very cathartic for them to be able to write books and share stories and get those things out of them. Yeah. But for me and my journey, I had already, um, done a lot of healing prior to the writing through counseling and, um, you know, 12 step programs. And I work in a church, and um, I do a lot of service work there, and that is healing for me. So um, a lot of my story of the, the two decades is, um, it's not that I'm glazing over and not sharing like, you know, and he threw me down the stairs and then right. I swallowed the bottle pills. But basically, essentially what my backstory is to my addiction is that I, um, I believe that the seed was planted for my addiction very early on in life. I come from a family that has alcoholics. Um, there was a lot of drinking and alcohol at the center of everything that I did growing up. Mm. Um, and I was an outcast as a child in school. I was awkward. Um, I, I believed because I was told by, uh, teacher, several different teachers, and maybe the students that hear the teachers talk, I believe that I was not um, smart. Mm. And um, everything I tried, I, I failed at, and you know how sometimes when you try too hard, then you really mess things up. So yes. I would overdo things. It was just a really my childhood. I had a great childhood as far as my family goes. I have wonderful mom and dad. My dad's now passed. I have um, an older sister and a younger brother. I have great memories. We, I grew up in a middle, uh, you know, middle of the road family. We had wonderful things at the school that I went to. They were nice, but I was an awkward child and I couldn't ever get out of the not cool 
lane. You know Re- what I mean? Relatable. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I would put a foot in it and I would try out for cheerleading and I would fall on my face. And then it was another mess of jokes. It was just always something. And the more I tried, the more awkward I became. And so I, um, I met some people, a group of people in my teenage years, um, around 16, 17, a group of guys, it was mostly guys and they were cool. They were, um, they had, they were all probably about two years older than me, maybe more. They had, um, muscle cars and Camaros and they would teach me how to, um, rebuild engines. And I was good at it. And then, you know, we would do fun things like go hiking and camping out in the woods and, and they were nice to me and they weren't, um, asking for anything in exchange. You know, they just thought I was a cool chick and they liked me and I made the group complete and we hung out. And they introduced me to a world uh, that I compared to Never Never Land. Mm. There was drugs and alcohol, and I I didn't have to pay for a thing. It was a free ride. And eventually, um, you know, over a short period of time, I was introduced to uh, the drug dealers. And then that got me in with the even higher level of drug dealers. So it's not just like one set of drug dealers in the world right. I was in. <laughs> There's different levels. So I kind of worked my way up very quickly. And I was um, entertaining and hanging out with the the top dogs in our area. And, you know, we were driving down to Miami and Fort Lauderdale and, and, wow. and, and riding in fancy cars and VIP clubs and all of this before I was even 21. So I... I was whisked away and into this world of, um, of just a lot, <laughs> a lot of everything that I've never, I had never had in my let's quote unquote normal life. Yeah. And so, um, at some point the, it shifted and I was a runaway at this point. So I had ran away, you know, it was too easy. It was an easy way out. I loved it. That's where I wanted to be. My parents didn't understand they weren't going to get me. I live, I love this world. I was going to live like this for the rest of my life. I, I had it all figured out at 17. Um, Don't and we all. <laughs> I know, right. I tell my 17 year old that I tell her all the time, read my book. Yes, yes. <laughs> you better read my book. She's like, I read your book, mom. Aww. Anyway. So, um, yeah, so it, that led to, um, I ended up getting, those guys, so the, my original group of guys kind of pulled back and they were doing their own things. And now I was in with these top dogs, either they pulled back or I didn't need them anymore. Anyway, that you look at it, I'm in with these guys now. And, um, at some point I became their property. I, it was no longer, I was in control. So, you know, looking back, I understand I was being groomed, but Mm -hmm. I didn't know that then. And I was in a situation um, for where you, you know, a, a type of human trafficking, as you would put it. it. And so I was held against my will there. And um, and they eventually had a police raid and they were raided and I was saved. And um, I went back home to my normal life, my vanilla life, I call oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't talk about it. And that was it. We just moved forward. Right. So my, my mom had offered me counseling at the time. Um, this was, so I'm 47 now, right? So this was 
this is decades ago and yeah. the recovering out loud, talking out loud, the word human trafficking, trafficking was non-existent, grooming, all the things that I just breezed over. Yeah. In that day and age, you don't talk about it. Right. Some, you know, and so I did have opportunity to go to counseling, but I didn't take advantage of the counseling. I really didn't. I remember sitting there thinking, I'm going to go to this counseling. And then my, I can tell my mom, I went to my session yeah. and make her happy, please her. And then um, maybe I'll get something out of it. If I don't, it doesn't really bother me because I've got this. I've got it inside of me. I'm going to keep a lid on it. I'm just going to move on with my life as if nothing ever happened. Mm. And that was my game plan. How long were you in, in this situation where it not, turned into being against your will? Yeah, not very long. Okay. But, uh, thank God. I yeah. mean, there was still a lot of damage done in the short of period course. of time that I was there. But I mean, less than a, a month Okay. Um, in, in the situation where I couldn't leave. Right. Um, and I think maybe leading up to that, I probably couldn't leave either. I thought I could. And if I right. had tried, maybe they wouldn't have allowed it, but I wasn't locked in a room. You Got know, it. I was still in on the, on the main level of the condo. And, um, I, I left with them to go to clubs and things like that. But, um, there was a period of time at the very end where I was upstairs and I was up to come down. So right. yeah, with that happening and then going back to my vanilla life um as if nothing happened and then getting right back connected with um you know family members and i i got a job and made some friends i just held that guilt and shame within me um as i moved on through life and um by then i you know i understood that alcohol and drugs could numb my pain mm. And I also understood that sex could be used for power, that it wasn't about love, not the love. I, I always knew it up until that point that it was something about love because that's what I witnessed from my parents who were high school sweethearts and, you know, yeah. um, married until the day that my dad died recently. So um, I had a whole different idea version of what that was. And so it was hard to be normal. I still. Okay. So I wasn't able to be normal when I was in elementary school, middle school, high school. And then now I'm back in the adult world and I can make my own choices, but I still just couldn't be normal. Right. I couldn't get a job and just go get a drink after work with some friends and just have normal relationships because I had all that locked within me. And, um, then I, I was in my relationship with my now husband. He's my third husband. Um, let's hope my final husband, I like this. This is a good husband. Yeah, is, He's a good is. husband and we're trucking along. And, you know, I, um, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I was popping Xanax, like they were Tic Tacs and washing it down with vodka and trying to and trying to put on the lipstick in the morning to put you know, have a pretty face. And I was just exhausted. And I thought I cannot do this again. Like yeah. I, I can't, I literally can't, I want to die. And so I did attempt suicide. I had failed. I went to treatment. Like, I think I was thir three treatment centers in one year and I had accumulated four DUIs in that year. And when I say year, I mean the first eight months of that year. Wow. And, um, I was looking at prison time because of my being a habitual violator with drinking and driving. Mm. And, um, 
I just didn't want to do it anymore. I just didn't want to be a mom. I didn't want to be a wife. I didn't want to be Melissa. It just wasn't worth it to me. And so I did, um, I went to my basement and I tried to end it. And I thought I had planned it out in a way that I could actually get away with it. And I, I say this all the time because I want people to know they would say, well, maybe my husband came home and he found me. Let me backtrack. He was supposed to go out of town. And, um, so I had strategically planned to attempt while knowing nobody could find me. So that way it would, the deal would be done. Right. Yeah. Um, but he forgot something and he came home and he found me. Okay. Yes. And so it, he, I call him my hero because he literally carried divine intervention. That is my divine. Yes. That's my divine intervention. And in the book, I share about the vision that I had just before he came home, I had seen an actual vision. So, um, he is my hero. He really is. He delivered me to the steps of, um, a better way of life. He's not a, he's not a drinker. He's certainly not an alcoholic. He doesn't use drugs. And, um, um, so what I'm walking through or what I was dealing with was so forward, it was so forward and so awkward for him, but he just knew like he, he wanted to help. He didn't know how it was so hard for him, but he did not give up. He still to this day has not given up. Essentially, he, he found me and sent, took me to that treatment center. And that's how I ended up in the dual diagnosis treatment center. From there, I, I embraced recovery with the understanding that well they say jails institutions or death yeah um i had been to jails and i had been, certainly been in institutions and i had tasted death i want to make this clear so a lot of people always ask me maybe you didn't actually want to die maybe you just wanted the attention or that was your way of saying i'm sick and i need help yeah and um that was not the case at all there, it was not an attention grabbing kind of thing. I, I was really that desperate that I, 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 I needed to go. I needed to stop harming the people around me. And, um, I just didn't, I don't think I had another breath left in me. I didn't. Yeah. yeah that's the way it led into that. And so then, you know, after I graduated the treatment facility, I took a lot of great things from that, um, that time there and applied it to my life. But really for the first year I was just going through, I was clock watching. I was yeah. going through the motions going, okay, is it time to go to bed? Oh, it's time to get up. Is it time to go to bed? Yeah. And it, it was tough. It was real tough. Yeah. You know, life goes on to your point, right? And there are still bad days and there are traumatic events and, and life happening around us. And, you know, if we put in the work daily, then I think we can get the rewards daily too, but it's not easy, right? It's not easy every day. It's not, I'll tell you one of the saving graces for me, um, is the unity that if you build a community around yourself, of good sober people or bad sober people, <laughs> whatever kind <laughs> of sober people, just as long as they're sober, <laughs> yes. 
Then once you're done crying on the floor, the fetal position in your room, and you've gotten your fit out of your system, you have people that you can go to like we are today. Y'all are my sober friends, yes. right? Yes. Um, the people that are listening, sure, we don't see each other face to face, but you're listening to me talk. I, I know you're out there. Right. You're my, you're my people, my right? People. And so um, you can kind of be accountable for what you're going through. You have somebody to launch your stuff on and then they, you know, communicate back and you learn and grow. And the unity keeps us from that isolation that um, breeds the guilt and shame mm, that just yes. destroys us. It just does it us. ever does mm -hmm. it ever. So tell us sort of where that inspiration came from to, to want to recover out loud and what that process looks like. What, how do you write a book? I don't know how right, to write a book, what right. it's called, where to find us. Give us all the detail. Okay. So it is funny because I did not want to write a book. I, um, I may still, yeah, I did not. I fought the journey. <laughs> I fought it hard. So I, there was a, I work at a church. I think it's hilarious that my God, God cracks me up. He really does. He, oh, yes. he reveals things to me all the time. And I'm like, how in the world did you pick me to be in this scenario? But okay, let's go for it. <laughs> right. He has me working at a church. And I think that that is is beautiful, but it is funny because that is not the life that I lived for a very long time. You know what I mean? I would say, I would say to people, oh, I can't go to church. I hope it's not a church wedding. If I walked into a church, lightning would strike me, you know, <laughs> right. and here I am, I work in one and I love it. It's the best job that I've ever had. It's the most rewarding. I love the people. Um, it's so in being of service and in, in this, in a service position, is healthy for me. When I would talk more openly than I probably had anybody in my life, because I feel like I was confessing things, even though I wasn't in confession, I just felt safe. And so he was intrigued by the story. And he told me that he had like a dream, or I don't know if it was a dream, but he had a through prayer, he felt that I was being called to write about it. So I, I need to write a book proposal. How do I do that? When would I possibly have time on my schedule <laughs> to do that? And I got COVID oh. and so, you know, where I'm writing slapping. And so I'm sitting in bed with COVID. I'm like, well, I guess I'll start Googling <laughs> and figure out how to do a book proposal. And then I came across the, um, author that wrote the foreword for the book. And that is Dr. Gary Chapman. And he is the author of the five love languages. He is, um, he has spent his whole entire life um, revolving around counseling and speaking and pastoring and sharing um, love and teaching people how to love mm -hmm. one another. And um, he is the bipolar opposite of me. You know what I mean? He's yes. a Southern Baptist preacher, counselor, doctor. He's everything that I am not and vice versa. <laughs> the one common denominator really is that we have a passion for loving one another. Um, love is, is um, a driving force within both of us. And after 167 rejection letters um, from agents and um, publishing houses, uh, Lighthouse Christian Publishing picked it up. They said that they had a personal interest in it. And then within days, I got several different offers. So I went from nothing to having choices. 
And I stuck with Lighthouse um, because um, I liked that they're a smaller um, publishing group. And I liked that they have um, a promise for some prison ministry or maybe um, mm. the, the jail and prison systems recognize their books. And so it would be easy for me to get in with like, those are my people, right? I want to yeah. get in there and this book is perfect for that. And so that um, really resonated with me. And then I think the bottom line was that they could turn it around and get it out into the world um, two years sooner than most of the other publishing houses. Um, wow. And I didn't want to wait. I really didn't. I wanted to get it out as fast as I could. And they were able to. So they picked it up in October of last year and it just launched at the end of wow. May. Yeah. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. That is and a it was a, Yeah. And it was a soft launch. And I knew that. I knew that we wouldn't be like full speed ahead, but I have a book in my hand, right? Yeah. So I've already been able to do what we're doing today. And, um, get it to people and people are able to get it, you know, off of Amazon. Um, and then eventually it will fully launch. And I think they'll have it in with like Ingram spark and where, um, it's a distributor where, um, like libraries and Barnes and Noble places like that can purchase it. Um, so that's what we're working on right now. So I kind of like that it launched in baby steps. So it yeah. ended up not being too overwhelming for me. Um, but there is something tangible. The book is there um, that people can have and they're buying it. They're loving Yay. it. And I'm getting feed. Yeah. And I'm getting feedback and, and it's great feedback. I think the number one thing that I'm hearing, well, there's a couple of things that stand up, but the number one thing that makes me happy that I'm hearing is that is not overwhelming. There are a lot of books about recovery that are out right now that um, are a lot bigger. So the page count is a lot, maybe like triple the amount of what my book has. Um, so I intentionally did it that way. I yeah. thought well, what we could do is maybe um, series and write a couple of smaller books. And so this first one is the initial book is sharing my journey, qualifying who I am yeah. and, and the scenario and just some of the, I, bra I, you know, I talked about some of the things that I remember, I wish I knew, or that I learned in early recovery. And then, you know, there's a couple of chapters that talk about important things like, um, breaking the stigma of addiction and, um, how, how you could look at it a certain way, um, to understand that addiction is a disease. And it is, you know, stated that way by the American Medical Association. This is not just addicts getting together and going, we have a disease too. It is, it is actually a disease. And I explain a little bit of why that is, what kind of a disease it is, how you could relate it to other acceptable diseases. Yeah. Um, so um, you could find a little bit more understanding and then compassion with it. So that's an important chapter. And then I have one that is about... Um, relapse and relapse prevention. And I want it right. And I, I want a book in the series specifically about that, but I had to have a chapter in this book like straight away because it is a, a convert. It is a stigma within the stigma. Yeah. Relapse is a stigma within the stigma of addiction, right? Yeah. Nobody wants to talk about that they've relapsed. Nobody wants to talk about that. It is possible, if not 
I mean, it's almost inevitable Mm. at some level. In the way that I describe it, I talk about the three different levels or stages of um, relapse that I recognize from my recovery and what those could look like and how you could possibly catch it in the first or second stage of um, relapse before you get to the physical stage, which is where you're actually actively using again. And um, Mm. I wanted that tool kind of out there as fast as I could, because relapse is where you hear, um, that's where we lose people. That's right. Yeah. I think to your point though, too, it's, it's for these folks that are in early recovery to look at a book that's 400 pages is, is just too much for them to sit down and commit to it and get the goods that are inside the book too. So I think that was so smart and such a good idea. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm getting good feedback about that. And then if it's a series and like the next, uh, the second book that I'm writing right now is about love and relationships and embracing, Mm. um, embracing love. And what does that look like? And so self-love comes first, right? Because if we don't love ourselves, how can we love others? That's right. And then going into um, some of the things that um, love looks different in recovery. It just really does. It's a whole whole new world. We have to date ourselves first, and then we have to figure out how to date other people. And when I say date, I mean your own children, your parents, like you've got to get, you have to reacclimate yourself to the world with love at a level that you, you, it's going to feel different. And so I want to help people with that because without love, we have nothing. That's amazing. Well, you mentioned the, you know, folks in early recovery, and we have a a large portion of our audience that is either still sober curious or Mm -hmm. in early recovery. Okay. So if, if you could sort of, um, brief, uh, I guess some, some things that are in the book, or if, if you would have, uh, some, some parting words or words of advice to leave some of those listeners with today, what would they be? I just want to tell whoever's listening that is, you know, those in those scenarios, just like Nate mentioned, either sober curious or just starting out or, um, maybe you got started and then you decided it's not for me, but now you're back at it again. There is hope. There is hope and there, and it is possible. We do recover. It is a one day at a time process. I want to be completely honest with you. There is a lot of hard work involved. The reward and the payoff is a beautiful life with deep relationships that mean something and in the the quality of air that you breathe waking up every day knowing that you have a freedom that you would never have with that addiction clinging to you is the most beautiful thing that you'll ever experience and consistently over time it gets better and better and one day your message your hard work is going to end up helping somebody else who needs to know just what we're talking about right now. That is such a beautiful thing. So if you're listening to this, I want you to know I wrote that book for you because I believe in you. I know that you have a purpose. You belong here. You are loved and I'm proud of you and you can do it. You really can. You have, you now have a friend in me. Yes. Melissa Gissy Witherspoon, I'm 
honored that we connected and I'm so grateful to have heard your story today. Thank you so much for sharing. And I'm certain that that book will help people for a long time to come. So thank you for being vulnerable and sharing uh, your journey. Thanks so much for listening today, friends. Hopefully you heard something that resonates with you. And if we help just one person, our job is done. Make sure you check out today's show notes for all of the information on today's episode and how to connect with our guest. You can find all things podcast related and subscribe to our show at the sobrietydiaries.com, youtube.com slash Nate Kelly, where we upload today's video podcast and on Instagram at the sobriety diaries pod. Check back every Wednesday for new episodes with new stories to tell. But until then, try your best not to drink and be good to yourself. Bye, friends.